Almost baseball season. That's not what this message is really about. This baseball represents the first consistent daily spiritual practice that I ever maintained in my life. And I'm not talking about Little League. It's not what it was. I'm going to tell you what that was in just a second. But first I want to tell you about this baseball itself. This was purchased at a World Series game in 1976 in Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. At one point it had all the signatures of the 1976 Yankees on it. At one point. Get to that in a second. It's the Yankees team that lost to the Big Red Machine, the Chicago Reds in 1976. They were swept for nothing. But it had the signatures of Mickey Rivers and Ed Figueroa and Chris Chambliss and all my favorite Yankee players from that time. And I said, had past tense. Because I was six years old when I got this gift. My dad got it for me, brought it back from that World Series game. And I loved it. All the Yankee players, right on one baseball. And for about a week, I treasured it. And then when another ball of mine rolled down the drain into the sewer, I was looking around for a ball that I could throw and play catch with. And what did I find but this ball? And I promised myself, I'm so sure-handed, there's no possible way that I will drop it. I will hold the signatures on here absolutely pristine, and it will stay so clean, and I can put it back without anyone noticing, and it will maintain, maintain its original pristine beauty. About, I think it was the fifth or sixth throw. This is what happens, Butterfingers. And this ball, with the signatures of all of the 1976 Yankees, became scuffed and dirty. And to this day, there is one small blue dot that you can see on it that is a shade of its former glory and maintaining all the signatures that it once held. I had a professor back in seminary who described herself something along the lines of a Korean Zen Buddhist Christian, and she was the first one who ever told me about the practice of mindfulness, and we were talking about periods in our lives in which we had been especially mindful or unmindful, and in the class, I talked about this ball. She said, the reason you keep it is because it is your mindful reminder of your unmindfulness at a different point in your life, and I got to tell you, I didn't make that decision consciously. But of all the various baseballs I have had in my life, the one that are existing under shrubs and, yes, in sewers and lost hundreds of them, hundreds of them, for some reason I held on to this ball even though I had violated its original purpose. I had held on to it. And then it became the object of my daily spiritual practice. It was in the winter into spring of 1999, and I was serving my first congregation in South Florida. And like many of us, our first year in a new job, you know, there's a lot of excitement. And then maybe about five, six months in, hit a complete wall. Felt like I was just repeating myself Sunday after Sunday, nothing fresh, nothing really to dig down and dig into. And I thought, okay, not even a mile wide and not even an inch deep was I in my first practice of ministry. I was already running on empty. And I called a friend of mine who was a former spiritual director of mine, someone I used to meet with every single month to talk about the state of my spiritual life when I was in seminary. And frankly, it's even more valuable when you're in the ministry than when you are in seminary to have that kind of relationship. 
And she said, she came out of a Catholic tradition, she said, well, you know, it's Lent right now. Have you considered having a daily spiritual practice? And I said, well, I grew up Jewish and I'm Unitarian Universalist, so I don't think Lent applies to me. She said, well, give it a try. And we were talking a little bit about what the shape of my days were like at this point, and it turns out what I was doing was watching a ludicrous amount of television to sort of soothe myself, sort of turn off my brain, not in a peaceful way, but in a way of just sort of like, you know, hibernating, hibernating from the world. And she said, try having a different ritual at bedtime. Try practicing some awakening, some mindfulness before you go to sleep. And maybe in that way you can find some deeper resources. And she said, you have an object of inspiration, something you'd use in your spiritual practice. And I went into the box that held this baseball. And this, my mindful reminder of my unmindfulness, became my daily spiritual practice. Every night, up and down, like a visual kind of mantra. Follow the ball up, follow the ball down. Follow the ball up, follow the ball down. It's like breathe in love, breathe out God. Breathe in, as some people have told me, breathe out Pepsi, breathe out Coke. Anything, <laughs> anything that will get your mind centered in the moment. And so every night for over a month and a half, I committed to that very simple spiritual practice. Just laying in bed, watching the ball rise, watching the ball fall. Watching the ball rise, watching the ball fall. And it was, as referred to in the Christian calendar, Holy Saturday, when I bedded down for my first ever Easter message, Easter sermon, the next day, and I had a dream. In the dream, I was doing nothing but sitting and holding this baseball in my hands, doing nothing but sitting and sort of adoring it. And it was in its current scuffed up, dirty fashion. And then I noticed something. I noticed something in where, where one of the stitches was along one of the seams. There seemed to be a little tear. There seemed to be a place where there was an opening. And so what I did is with my thumbnail, I kind of picked at it. And there was something underneath that I couldn't quite see. There was something inside that I couldn't quite get a handle on. And so what I did is literally I started peeling this baseball like it was an orange. But actually it was more like it was an onion because with every layer of dirt and grime that was being released and shed, literally I had like a pile, like a compost pile next to me of discarded baseball husks. There was something that I was trying to get at at the center. There was something that was trying to reveal itself to me. And so I kept peeling and shucking this baseball over and over and over again. You know, dream time is completely warped. It seems like I was at this for hours. And still I couldn't see what was at the center, what was inside. Until finally, complete surprise to me in my dream, what I held in my hands was the original, absolutely pristine 1976 baseball. And I saw again Mickey Rivers and Chris Chambliss and Ed Figueroa and Ron Guidry. And I held it up and it was as beautiful and as new as the day it was born, at least in my life. And I was so happy. And at that moment, I woke up and I remained as happy as I was in my dream. This baseball, in some ways, had been given back to me. It's an original state. Frank, hold on to that for me, would you? I think that's kind of what Easter is about. 
Did the dream really happen to me? Well, yes and no. That's kind of the question that Easter puts before us this morning. You see, because in more traditional Christian communities, and although we emerged out of Christianity, we're not a member of the National Council of Churches, we incorporate that aspect of our past as Unitarian Universalists, but we are not only that. In many Christian churches throughout the land this morning, there is the message, you must fully accept that Jesus Christ was crucified on Good Friday and stayed in the tomb on Sunday and excuse me, on the tomb on Saturday and arose on Sunday morning, and then you will be saved. It is an argument over whether you will accept the facts of the story. Accept the facts and be saved, deny the facts, and well, you won't. But I think there is a different way of approaching this story, the story of the resurrection. And it is very akin to what I experienced in that dream in which the scuffed baseball became to me whole again and I was made incredibly happy through it. I don't think that Easter is most fruitfully approached by arguing over the facts. Did it happen? Did it not happen? We can never answer that. I think it unlikely, to be honest with you, but there are many unlikely things that happen. So I think there's a different question. Can Easter be a calling to our souls? Can it be a calling to our spirits to wake up, to rise up, to be reawakened, to move from an entombed life, a life hidden away, to move into a blessed and more full life? I don't think that argument over supernaturalism will get us anywhere anymore, not here at Wellsprings. Here at Wellsprings, we're engaged in a lifelong conversation about the means, the methods, and the value of human awakening. And that is not an argument over did he or didn't he. So I think the question for us here this morning to make sense of Easter is not did he rise, but can we rise? Not did he rise, but can we? Can we experience a reawakening? Can we experience a deeper returning to life, a deeper commitment? See, that's what Easter is really about. It is not, although a lot of people want to tell you that, it is not about personal immortality. Easter is not about personal immortality or the immortality of the soul. There are lots of traditions worldwide that will promise you the immortality of your soul. That's not what Easter is about. It's a small part of it. We don't get pictures of Jesus in heaven in the Gospels. What we get is him returning to life. Easter is about that for us as well. How do we who are still alive but perhaps living entombed lives, hidden away, hibernating after a long winter. How do we return to life when we feel that we might want to sequester ourselves and hide away like no doubt my little rabbit is in the corner, wondering what all this noise and all this commotion is about? See, Easter provides a message needed at this time of the year. See, nature is starting to wake up and is beautiful and it is glorious, but we don't necessarily always follow nature's rhythm. Do you know the single biggest time of the year when people take their own lives it is right now for all we hear about depression and the holiday blues and the december blahs it is this time of the year where more people commit suicide than at any other time during the calendar just because nature is awakening doesn't mean that perhaps we are as well listen to these words of t.s Eliot that you perhaps might know April is the cruelest month. 
reading lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow. Well, maybe not this year too much, but cold at least. Feeding a little life with dried tubers. Bless you. T.S. Eliot was right, and he knew it before social science could prove it to us. Why is it that this time of the year, springtime, early springtime, can seem cruel? It can be because we might be looking around at a life that is blooming and growing, and nature is coming awake. Perhaps we don't feel that way inside as well. Perhaps we feel that the winter season is back where we are and we are drastically out of step with the world around us. I hope that's not where you are this day, but it's a common experience in springtime. Maybe you've got a soul sickness or a heartache that just won't let you go because perhaps I think the greatest psychic pain that any of us can feel is when we are living life with our nose pressed to the glass, when we are looking at life from the outside in. When all the beautiful party and all the beautiful awakening seems to be going on out there and in here we feel out of step. Kind of like having a miserable cold or flu on one of those gorgeous 85 degree July days. You feel just completely out of step with what is. And it's this kind of dissonance to which Easter is addressed. We don't want to live if we don't have to with our nose pressed to the glass looking from the outside in. And we don't have to. We can live in such a way that we are looking at life and living our lives from the inside out. That we can cultivate who we are and share our gifts and be fully awakened. Now, there's a part of the Jesus tradition that is very different from what's in the traditional Gospels. Any of you know that term, the Gnostic Gospels or Gospel of Thomas? They were found within the last 40, 50, 60 years. And they picture... Jesus in some very, very different ways than the Gospels do, and in some ways that a lot of religious liberals have been drawn to. Because a lot of the Gospel traditions, the one in the Bible themselves, they focus a lot on Jesus the person. Are you going to believe in Jesus the person and be saved? Are you going to believe the story about Jesus and through that find faith and, as they promise, eternal life? Well, the Gospel, the gospel of Thomas that is outside their tradition presents a very, very different picture. It focuses not so much on the person of Jesus, it focuses instead on the wisdom that Jesus shared, which is open to all of us. It's not about believing in a particular way, reciting a creed, believing a dogma. It's about living in a particular way. My favorite from the Gospel of Thomas is number 70. It's just a number of about 100 sayings, one after the other after the other says this, if you bring forth that which is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth that which is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Recite the positive part last again. If you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. Now, Elaine Pagels, who was one of the first scholars, teaches at Princeton to address, really address this Gospel of Thomas, the Gnostic Gospels, says that she actually returned to the Christianity that she had rejected because she found a different voice of Jesus, a radically different voice in these Gnostic Gospels. She said, this picture of Jesus comes to reveal that you and he are, if you like, twins. And what you discover as you read the Gospel of Thomas, what you're meant to discover is that you and Jesus are at the deepest level 
identical twins. And that you discover you are every much, as much a child of God as is he. Jesus in the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas says weird, really cool Eastern things that we don't associate with the Jesus of the Gospels. He said, split a piece of wood and I am there. Lift up a stone and I am there too. There's this idea that the sacred saturates our life and is all around us. It's not something up there beyond us. It's something in here and close to us. And it sounds so wonderfully universalistic that I had this idea in my mind from this Sikh, this Sikh teacher that I had read a decade ago. And it's Teg Bador, who's the leader of the Sikh religion, who was martyred for refusing to give up his faith in the 17th century in India. He said, why do you go to the forest in search of the divine? God lives in all and abides with you too. As a fragrance dwells in a flower or a reflection in the mirror, so the divine dwells in everything. Seek, therefore, in your own heart. Seek, therefore, in your own heart. Reminds me of what Einstein said. Either everything is a miracle or nothing is a miracle. Either everything is saturated for this with the sacred or nothing is at all. See, we can see the miracle here and live from the inside out. We know that we don't have to walk in our hands and our knees in penitence. We don't have to try and struggle with strife and go far, far places away. Here, here is what we need amongst us, in between us, and inside of ourselves. These are the places that we can find the deepest, truest life. Either everything is a miracle or nothing is. And so Easter, even our non-traditional way of understanding it, invites us to ask the question, what are the tombs that are blocking our particular life? What are the ways in which our souls, our spirits, are feeling entombed this day? Perhaps it is long-held grief or long-suppressed pain. Or maybe your tomb this morning is just an image of happiness that perhaps you think can never be yours. Perhaps in an image of life becoming whole and you wonder, do I really have this within me? Perhaps we even think that we want to stay in the tomb. Winter is cold, but it is also comforting. We stay in the tomb, we will remain safe. But all of us really know that life that is trapped ultimately cannot flourish. Life that is trapped and held inside cannot grow and it cannot be shared. And I'll show you a video clip right now from a movie that is completely irreverent, but also deeply warm and moving. It's from the 40-year-old virgin. And I tell you, I had to really struggle to find what I wanted to give you because I had to share one that didn't have the F word in it. And so this is about Andy, who is the 40-year-old virgin. And you're going to see a conversation between him and Trish, who's the woman that he is falling in love with, and she is falling in love with him. Go ahead. Now, there's a later scene in the movie that I couldn't show you. I just couldn't push it too much, in which ultimately Andy has to make a decision. And if you still have collectibles, I know some of you do, I'm not telling you you need to get rid of them in order to awaken. But really... Andy is like one of his collectibles. He is wrapped away and kept safe. He is inside the plastic. He is hiding himself from life and ultimately has to make a decision. Will he reveal his vulnerability 
over who he is and over the fact that he's still living a boy's life and will he actually grow up into this new relationship with this woman who he loves so deeply and loves him as well. See, this time of the year is an invitation to risk, to move beyond where we are when we might feel that we are closed up and wrapped in plastic or entombed in our own safety. It's time of the year to ask ourselves, is the life that you are living sufficient for the life that wants to live in you? Is the life that you are living sufficient for the life that wants to live in you? Now, answering this question means that we have to have a willingness to risk. Willingness to risk and also to feel uncomfortable. It's kind of like when you walk out of a movie, when you've been going to the movie in the middle of the day, and you walk out into that daylight and it's completely blinding. You know that you are intended to leave the movie. But you know when you walk out into that daylight, it is not going to feel comfortable. And that's exactly what Andy has to experience in the 40-year-old virgin. He has to enter into that place of deeper life and deeper love that is calling for him. However, he knows it's not going to feel comfortable. Now that question, are you living the life and is your life sufficient to live the life that wants to live in you? This is a question that was posed to me for the first time by one of my favorite spiritual teachers, Parker Palmer, who's a Quaker. And Parker Palmer has taught educators, he's taught ministers, he's taught corporate CEOs, he's taught all sorts of people over the decades of the life of his teaching about how to live authentically, about how to live from the inside out. And as Parker Palmer is asking this question of other people all the time, he also is repeatedly asking the question of himself. And he has been a very, very accomplished academic. He has taught at some of the finest academic institutions that there are in America. But he knows that there are parts of him that are still underdeveloped and fearful. And he says he grew up a sort of bookish child, really sort of scared of a lot of the outside world. And so what he elects to do after his 60th birthday is to go on an outward bound journey. And this is where he finds himself one day hanging, well, not quite hanging, clinging for all he is, to the side of a rock wall, out in nature, the side of a mountain. And he finds himself there, paralyzed with fear, clinging to this rock wall, shaking, saying, just leave me here. Just leave me here. You can come back and get me later. Then I'll be ready to move. And as he is hugging the rock wall face for dear life, for dear life, holding on, The woman who's leading the expedition up above him, you know, he's tethered to the ropes and everything, you know, he says he's going to be safe, but his emotional mind can't accept that. She says, Parker, Parker Palmer, anything we can do for you down there? Everything okay? And he kind of peeps out, I want to talk about it. (laughs) This incredibly accomplished 60, 62 year old man has become a child again. I don't want to talk about it. Parker, we know you can do this. And it's the only way off this mountain. What you need to do, that you're not going to like doing, but I can tell you you're safe. We have you. We are holding you. You are connected. What you need to do is to push back with your feet against the rock wall so that you are perpendicular to the mountain itself. Huh? You can do this. You can do this. And tentatively, he lifts his legs up and he pushes himself against the rock wall. And before he knows it, he's actually doing it. He is pulling himself up the mountain. And he is feeling really, really good. 
And then, and then, he encounters a crater. A crater so deep into the side of the mountain that he looks up for help to the teacher, to the lead expedition organizer, and she says, okay, this is what you need to do, Parker. You need to push off with your feet as strong as you can, swing out away from the mountain, swing out away from the rock wall, and go over to where it ends on the side, and then you'll be able to continue your climb up the mountain. And at this point, Parker Palmer says he becomes preverbal. <laughs> he is so afraid. He literally utters, Eep. you know, I mean, he just... He's lost the ability to communicate. He's so terrified. And the leader of the expedition, I mean, she's good. She knows what she's doing. She said, you come to the moment that everyone comes to in Outward Bound. Come to the moment of realizing what our motto is. Realizing that you have a choice to make. Realizing that where you are right now, it is time. And he says, beep, again. And her response is, this is our motto. If you can't get out of it, get into it. If you can't get out of it, get into it. And at that point, his brain snaps on again. Something in his spirit, a courage he did not know he had, he is now able to face. And he, still trembling somewhat and holding on to that cord, pushes himself out and swings along the crater and doesn't break his head open on the rock, doesn't break any bones, just sort of lands with a thud against the rock, but holds himself there and is able to continue his way step by step up the mountain. That's really what, from our perspective, Easter is about. It is not about an argument over personal immortality. It is not about saying, did he or didn't he? It is about saying, can we? Can we, when we face those moments of knowing that there is no way we can get out of it, of finding those times when we are afraid that the tomb, the hibernation, the hiddenness is all we might know, that we can say we won't get out of it. We will get into it. We will get into it, recognizing that the only way out is through. And so this day and for the days to come, I would encourage you, Find ways to get into it. Find ways to recognize that there is that new life inside of you because all our lives are saturated with the sacred, saturated with Buddha nature or the presence of God or the inner light, the inner spark. Whatever name you would wish to call it, our tradition welcomes it. But it is real and it animates who you are and it allows you to live a life beyond fear beyond hibernation, beyond hiding away, beyond turning your back to things, beyond looking for the escape hatch. If you can't find your way out of it, get into it. Find that most resilient part of who you are. Love it. Live from it. Find the place that is inside of you that is the most courageous, perhaps even a courage that you never knew you might have had. Find that place within you that has the resources to love more deeply, more wholly, more wonderfully than perhaps you might not have ever known you possessed. May you this day get into it. And from that place, may you walk out into life and share all of it, all of who you are with the rest of this existence. That is finally what resurrection means.
Amen. May you live in blessing.